Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Hattie Dulac, here with my co-host, Kate Price-McCarthy. Hi, Kate. Hi, Hattie. It's great to be here today. Well, it's lovely to have you. And I want to know, are you reading anything good at the moment? Well, I am really enjoying immersing myself in the London nightclub scene of the 1920s. So this is in Kate Atkinson's Shrines of Gaiety. I really love the way on the audiobook, it's Jason Watkins, who he's one of these people that his name might not be familiar as an actor, but if you look him up, you'll know exactly who I mean. He seems to be in everything. And I'm going to be looking out for him as a narrator for other books because I think he's great. And it's a really quite a lighthearted romp compared with some of her other books. And it features a female gangster and her family. So how about you? What are you up to reading? I'm actually... Only about 30 pages into the book that I'm reading, but it's called Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And it is written as a letter from the author to his teenage son, talking about his experiences growing up being black in the United States and the kind of implications of that. It's a really short book. I think there's only sort of 200-ish pages. I'm reading it on Box at the moment. But it's really, really interesting. And I've heard a lot of people talk about it. And I've heard a lot of, yeah, a lot, a lot of discussion about the book and the author and stuff. So it's well worth a read. I'd recommend it. Yeah, I was just uh, looking it up now as you were talking because it sounded intriguing. It's got some really good people behind it. Mm-hmm. It sounds fascinating. Anyway, today's episode of Love Your Library features an interview with someone who's been taking book talk by storm and that's uh, Chloe Gong. But Hattie, before I ask you, before you tell us a little bit about your chat, can you tell us a bit more about BookTok? Because it, I'm a completely, I'm of the age where I'm completely oblivious of such things. <laughs> I don't believe that for a second, Kate. I'm sure you've got your burner TikTok account hidden away. Yeah, so on TikTok and kind of, it, I think it's kind of sprawled out to other platforms as well, but particularly on TikTok, there's a huge community of book lovers and reviewers and just people in a community who love reading who really grant access to new new books and particularly fiction but everything else really in a, in a different way i think the way that we get book recommendations is changing with technology and booktok is a really good example of how it's kind of like super powered word of mouth recommendations and a lot of advocacy from readers across the globe you can kind of access all these things without having to go on a review website or to go Mm. to read an article or the new york times bestseller list or whatever to get your recommendations so yeah book talk it's it's an interesting one i feel like if you're ever stuck for new suggestions go and follow some book talk accounts which you can find just by searching for them and you might get reads that you never thought you would discover before that's a useful insight for me too. I must I must get more involved with TikTok and BookTok. Yeah. So tell me about uh, your conversation with Chloe. Yes, I had a fantastic time talking to Chloe about her Secret Shanghai series, which is a fantastical sort of sci-fi fantasy collection of Shakespearean retellings, in particular sort of Romeo and Juliet and As You Like It. Yeah, Shakespearean retellings set in the dark corners of the 1920s Shanghai Mafia scene, which is just as compelling as and as interesting as it sounds. She is a brilliant young writer with her debut novel, which actually did make it onto the New York Times bestseller list, published when she was just 21. And she's written like loads since, like four or five since. So she's really kind of blasting through it. And yeah, she was great, really great to speak to. 
And later on in the episode, Hattie and I catch up with Nikki, who's an events engagement and information manager at Hampshire Libraries. She's picked a great read to recommend, so we'll be chatting about that a bit later when we'll be talking about the English countryside and the role of hot weather in stories. For now, though, let's get on and listen to my conversation with the lovely Chloe Gong. Welcome, Chloe, to the Love Your Library podcast. We are delighted to have you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We're here today to kind of talk about your upcoming release, which is, of course, Last Violent Call. Mm. So I think for the benefit of our listeners, if you could give a little bit of background about the book. Yes. So Last Violent Call is a novella collection which serves to bridge together the two duologies um, coming to either side of it. So it was a really interesting passion project to begin with because I had finished These Valentines and Our Violent Ends that was wrapped up, as, it was in the world. And although it stands on its own, there is a spinoff attached to it, which I kind of always say, like, you can go into the spinoff without having known the original duology. But if you have read the first two books, the spinoff also serves as book three because it follows a character that you've met already and knowing her backstory is very helpful. And then the spin-off duology kind of brings in the characters, the main characters from the original duology. And I was very intentional going into it because I knew that I wanted to keep some secrets from the reader as we were wrapping up the original duology. I'm trying to keep vague in case, in case I'm like spoilers, <laughs> but like there's, there's a big, big question at the end of Our Valent Ends where I thought most of it was leaning towards one way where you're kind of like hopeful, but there's always that bit of doubt because Ballady Fortune, which is the spinoff, very much hinges on this main character's grief and her mistakes. And when you get to the end of Fallity Fortune, a lot of things are thrown up in the air because you're like, oh, some people are about to come back to help out in the upcoming fourth book. So <laughs> the novella collection to go back to Last Violent Call kind of fills in the gaps. It explains what has been happening with the original duology characters in that time period. And it kind of gives that uh, easy segue into the upcoming like fourth book in the universe but the second book in the spinoff. I'm really excited because the whole novella collection is just very, it's very like soft and wholesome mm-hmm. because it's kind of like the way I think of novellas is like a little breather while also giving like critical information. So really excited about it. Yeah. And I mean, so many questions to ask about it really, but you've touched on one of the key things that I wanted to know really, which is that reading the novellas, it feels like closure feels like you know nicely tied up and wrapped up was Mm. it emotional for you to write these books does it feel like the end of a of a series you know a big part of your life yeah absolutely I was doing the math a while back where I had started writing these violent delights when I was 18 19 ish and this year well I mean I'm 24 right now and this year all the like books come out so that's six years of my life is a whole quarter of my life um so it's really really it feels as if I have known these people like in my life and now I have to like say goodbye to them or something I mean they're always going to be there right but it's like sending a child off to university (laughs) yeah it it does feel like that kind of like almost a a moment to reflect a moment to be Mm. like like these are the characters that we've 
grown to love over, mm-hmm. over the years. You know, people are obviously so connected to the characters in these stories. And I think, yeah, it, it reads as such a nice opportunity to to kind of see how they're doing. Let's check in. Let's see what's yes. going on. Yes, that's my favorite thing about novellas. It feels like, a oh, let's get a, a slice of life from them. Yes, exactly. And do you find writing a novella versus a sort of like 450 page novel the writing process is different you have to go through more revisions and things like that Ooh. so for me it actually felt much much easier mm. um and I don't know if it's because I went in very intentional with what I was going to do with it as as they before like it was it started as a passion project I didn't know if I was going to sell it or not I didn't know if if we did give it to the publisher where they would place it. Originally, I had actually uh, proposed for it to be placed at the very end. So I was proposing that we wait for Fowlady Fortune and its sequel both to come out. And then we put out these novellas to fill in the blanks of, to explain how they ended up turning up in the fourth book. And then my US publisher came back to me and said, actually, why don't we put it before the fourth book? And then it's kind of like readers are now knowing like what is going to come. And I thought, okay, that's actually really interesting. So as I was writing it, there was only really one plot in both of the novellas, which is rare for me because my full-length novels have many, many subplots that once we get to the climax, I'm like, okay, now let's tie it all (laughs) together. So yeah, it was a lot less revision, surprisingly, mm-hmm. because there was only really one main purpose following uh, both of the characters in each novella. And it felt very lighthearted just because I really went in with a single-minded focus. So hope out there for those aspiring writers who might want to start with the novella before mm-hmm. they get into the full-blown one. One thing I was going to mention as well, is that the stories that you tell seem to involve Shakespearean stories that are kind of interpolated into fantasy settings and stuff like that. Is there a reason for that? Is that you're kind of like, are you just a giant Shakespeare (laughs) fan or anything like that? I am a giant Shakespeare fan, but this brand kind of started by accident at first because I had gotten the idea for these Vile Delights and it had come to me as a blood feud rival gangsters star-crossed type story and I was brainstorming it and I just sat there and thought I cannot write this without everyone in the world saying this is just Romeo and Juliet so because I had already preemptively known what the comparison would, would be I wanted to just go in outright doing a retelling because you know as someone who really loves Shakespeare as an English major who really knows the power of like re-engaging with past texts made it so much more interesting to me to actually take existing characters ideas themes and then look at it again with a new lens it just it was really fascinating to me and because I had kind of started with that brand I went into the spin-off thinking oh let's retell a comedy and then I went into my adult debut thinking oh let's retell Antony and Cleopatra, which have these very like more mature themes compared to the youthfulness of Romeo and Juliet. So I think maybe after this, I'll start doing like non-Shakespeare stuff. <laughs> but, you know, doing doing these retellings has been a lot of fun. I mean, why break a formula if it works, you know? But I think um, potentially it's also got that kind of added benefit of if Shakespeare is inaccessible for some readers, this kind of transforms it and gives it a whole mm-hmm. whole new life. And particularly, actually, in terms of representation. So Mm. this story is set 
these stories, I should say, are set in Shanghai in the sort of like 1920s, 1930s, and obviously feature Chinese people, Russian people, French, but like it, it explores themes of colonialism, industrialization, communism, which seem like a perfect mm-hmm. backdrop for Shakespeare, really, but also potentially for readers who've not been able yes. to see themselves represented. It's, I think it's a brilliant way to do that. Thank you. I really did want to kind of make it like Shakespeare before the new generation, a new audience, right? Mm. Because although I love Shakespeare, I've even found it's really hard to understand him without a really good teacher mm. and, you know, maybe spark notes open on the side. Because it's true, like he was written 400 years ago. That is a lot of time for language to change. And the way that I wanted to go about it was let's take these really, really interesting themes that have survived, give them new faces, give them new lenses, give them new ways of being understood by, you know, this day and age. Yeah, absolutely. And in such a, like, unbelievably rich setting as well, I was sort of like, furiously googling what Shanghai looked like in the <laughs> 1920s, because the the book just does like such a good job of picturing all these locations. But oh, when you google it, it's like, oh my god, there, there are so many rich details and dark corners <laughs> that make these stories like this possible. So was Shanghai always going to be the setting for this? Did you ever imagine it happening anywhere else? Shanghai was always going to be the setting behind it because it a lot of the main plot stemmed from the historical background. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think I could imagine these violent delights not in 1920 Shanghai because the setting is just so intrinsic to how the story got told. Because the reason why I had imagined, you know, rival gangsters, blood feuds, is because 1920 Shanghai in true history was ruled by gangsters. It was, you know, carved out between foreign powers after the Opium Wars, which meant there were no, you know, unifying police forces, no unifying law. Each different Western country was controlling a section of the city. And then the local Chinese people just had bits, pieces that they were controlling. There was no communication in law and order, which meant the gangsters were like, haha, this is our turn now. <laughs> and that was such a fascinating background to me. And it just screamed of a story to be plucked out of, which is why, you know, so much of these violent delights and then even the subsequent books, even the spinoff as well, it is very, very historically grounded, even though I bring in, you know, monsters and insects and scientific experiments it still ultimately wants to stay true to the atmosphere and the feeling of the time so even if i change certain things um, and add mysticalness it i really wanted to i wanted it to feel as it should have and not like stray away from okay well we're going to use this as a backdrop like it it has to feel as though the city is a part of the book's heart well, I think it absolutely succeeds at that. It, you know, it's got this kind of like just this like depth to it that any reader will be captivated by. So, I guess like kind of moving on, I guess a bit more to your like writing background and things like that. You mentioned that you were sort of writing this book when you were eighteen or nineteen, and as a as a younger writer, I'm sure you've probably experienced unique challenges, particularly in sort of a large industry like publishing. Do you have any advice for? Uh, writers in a similar position or anything like that? I think my biggest advice to younger readers is to, not younger readers, younger readers and younger writers. Uh, you have to be a reader as a writer as well. So that still checks out. Um, it's, it's to write a lot because so much of writing is kind of fumbling your way around it until you find 
what your style is, you find what sort of, you know, narrative tone you prefer. A lot of these things where it's very hard to decide something and go in and it's very, very hard to kind of pinpoint what it is until you do it a lot of times. And the thing about writing is that there's just no one right way to do it, right? I always kind of think about it as a muscle where the more you use it, the more you kind of know just how it works. If you like, you know, when you fall off a bike, and you kind of just know how to catch yourself. Yeah. Babies, if they fall off a bike, they're probably going to like hit their head really hard. <laughs> That's how I think about writing, right? You you go into a story and if you've just fumbled around a lot of times, you kind of know how to catch yourself as you're trying to tell the story. And another main thing is fumble around a lot. Like that, that kind of stems into the write a lot part because things that first come out are never going to look the way that you want it to. But the more you do it, the more you kind of write just for the sake of writing instead of trying to create a, you know, complete manuscript or a perfect manuscript, really, really going to help your writing skills. As a younger writer, I suppose you've kind of grown up within the industry at a mm. time where things like, you know, social media and, and TikTok, book talk in particular have taken off. What's been your experience of kind of being embedded within those communities? It's been very interesting to go through that because in a way, I think we're kind of reaching a very new technological age of the publishing industry in a way that publishing has never seen it before. I was doing a lot of reading in the 2010s, right? When we were going through our Hunger Games, Divergent, that boom, when so many, so many YA books were coming out, I was that reader just engulfing all of them. It was interesting back then because I was finding my uh, reading by, you know, Goodreads or Tumblr, things like yeah. that. And it's very interesting that as I've become an author, we've seen the rise of like TikTok and Instagram, these kind of kinds of platforms where it's less publisher focused and more things that just suddenly go viral and get discovered and readers yeah. talk about it. So it's very fascinating to me because I, I'm on all of these platforms and I use it to connect with readers, to kind of have a fun time. That's the way that I like using it. Whereas a lot of talk now is kind of be on TikTok to market yourself, to get your books out there. I think the moment that that starts happening, readers can kind of tell that there's not a genuine element to it and it might fall a bit flat. So it's really interesting to me how the book industry is fumbling its way around, you know, this new social media age. But as far as my experience has been, I really loved, you know, having these platforms. I really think being on TikTok, especially during the pandemic, helped get the word of mouth on, you know, these mountains of lights out. It, I don't know how it would have performed during a pandemic when all the stores are closed without the kind of like, you know, online angle where people could still connect to each other. So, yeah, I, I really love it for that. Yeah, you're totally right. There's loads of little kind of marketing tricks that people are using to make mm -hmm. things seem authentic and especially you know Gen Z and, and younger audiences they can tell so easily you know it they just, can smell an ad a mile away I know, I know <laughs> exactly but yeah you meant you mentioned Tumblr there which is an interesting one because um I yeah I grew up very much in the age of Tumblr that was that was that was my era yeah but I, I read somewhere that your kind of like existence on the internet included an Arctic Monkeys fan Tumblr. Oh um, yeah, I know. I've been done my research, but <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you were going to run a fan account for mm. anything today, what would it be? Oh, 
See, this is a good question because a lot of my, like some of my existing blogs are still active. Like I'll go back sometimes yeah. if there's like a new release. Like I, I still have a um, Divergent and Shadowhunters blog. Like it's still out there somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there. If I had to run over anything. Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> I want to say The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea by Axie O. That's the first one that comes to mind because I think I remember one of my favorite parts about running Tumblr fan blogs was reblogging GIFs. Like, Mm -hmm. remember the age where GIFs were just so popular and those beautiful GIF sets? I think that book in particular Mm. do so well in the gift set community i know this is a really really niche answer but (laughs) this is what i wanted i wanted specifics i wanted ideas (laughs) yeah i think i would really really love to make graphics for the girl who told me to see and axie's writing is beautiful so it would do so well like quotes just splatted everywhere yeah yeah okay i can imagine that (laughs) so another thing that sort of as soon as you kind of like start looking anything up to do with your books the fan art is absolutely incredible because of the amazing descriptions and the writing I think it just lends itself so well to these incredible illustrations and particularly you know Juliet with her like (laughs) hair and her outfits what has sort of that been like for you to see your words come to life amazing I I think because I grew up as the reader right I had grown up being that fan on the other side and kind of just freaking out about new releases, like being really, really excited to talk about the characters, to kind of like, you know, keyboard smash and the Tumblr tags. Now I'm really like getting into it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's been so unbelievable and surreal to actually be on the receiving end of like, oh, my words have now caused that reaction in turn Mm -hmm. because I know what it's like to be a fan of things. And I know how like, how much love goes into something to create fan art, to create like all of those kinds of things. It just means a lot to me because it really, there needs to be a certain level of dedication before you create that stuff. And to have that means that people are really, you know, loving what they're reading and that, and I'm just sitting there like, wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is amazing. It is amazing. And I suppose like the genre that you write in is it, the sci- sort of science fiction fantasy genre is it lends itself really well to that. Do you kind of think your writing style sits sort of comfortably within the science fiction fantasy genre? Do you think you'll ever kind of explore other genres and different spaces? Good question. I do think I'm very comfortable in the science fiction fantasy like space because I have read so much of it again right like so much of writing is reading and so much of learning how to be a writer is also reading so much and I have like I'd grown up with all of these series that kind of take this you know urban fantasy angle or like a slight science fiction angle like while being very rooted in the real world and I think that comes through with all the series that I've been writing so far I just really like having like I I like working with the idea of okay we're going to do a lot of historical research which also means we can yeah as I can describe Juliet's hair and her like flapper dresses and all of this is like available for research and I can bring in the details that's fascinating to me but then also add in just complete invention and bring in the fantasy angle I really really love doing that I think of myself as a bit of a cross-genre writer like I'm never really writing complete fantasy but I always try to bring fantasy in 
So I think in the future, I I want to keep staying in that kind of like nebulous cross genre space, but I don't know. I might like to write something kind of literary one day, or maybe just sort of experimenting with the genre. But I don't I don't think I would ever be a complete contemporary writer. Mm. I think somehow I would bring murder in somehow, <laughs> and it just wouldn't fit. That would be insects flying in, vacuums exactly. going yeah. around, you know, different, <laughs> yeah. different elements. So I think you've kind of spoken about, about your kind of influences and things like that, but are there any books outside of the ones that inspire you that you like to read? I, I have recently discovered that I quite enjoy like hard science fiction. Mm. I'd always thought of myself as a, oh, I like it when it's mostly character focused or mostly, you know, storyline focused. I read The Three Body Problem by um, Xin Liu, which is a very, very popular Chinese science fiction writer. Mm. I read the English translation because my Chinese is not good enough to be re- like reading the original. English translation is also really well done. And I really realized that I kind of like weirdly specific details. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to keep reading a lot of hard science fiction. Maybe I'll yeah. write one one day but we'll see how it goes yeah oh that would be <laughs> I love I love a bit of science fiction I suppose kind of brings us on to the thing that obviously from my perspective is one of the most important things to ask an author which is how do you feel about libraries love them well I <laughs> all of my all of my reading is from libraries back when I was living in New Zealand As anyone from New Zealand knows that books take a long time to get there. A lot of times because we export from the UK. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it takes some time for it to cross the ocean. So whenever there was a big, big release and it was having like maybe a simultaneous US-UK release, it would probably take like another few weeks to get into New Zealand bookstores. Just, you know, maybe it's different now, but when I was growing up, that was the case. However, libraries were really onto it. So I I honestly, my mom got so sick of taking me to the library every week because I was a really fast reader as well. I would walk out with like a whole stack of books and then by the Wednesday, would go every weekend. By the Wednesday, I'd be like, can we go to the library again? She'd be like, no, like wait until the weekend. How do you read so fast? Um, so yeah, it's, I, I don't think I would be the person I am today or the author I am today without having that local library. So you kind of touched on earlier when we were speaking your next release after Last Violent Call. So you mentioned it's going to be an adult book rather than a YA book, which uh, is this your kind of first time writing an adult book? It is. It is my first adult book. And I had just kind of suddenly stumbled onto the fact that I wanted to write one. I think because I was approaching the end of university and I was sitting there thinking, okay, my coming of age is done. Like my young adult experience is done. What do I do now? And then I kind of realized the entirety of the adult age category is just about that. Like life actually doesn't end at the young adult age category. I'm shocked. (laughs) Um, So yeah, my, my adult debut is coming out in July. It's a Anthony and Cleopatra inspired fantasy trilogy that kind of follows these two aristocrats who are trying to take down a fantasy monarchy for reasons that are a bit opaque at first and then you kind of start realizing what's going on you start thinking about ideas of power distribution and you know inheritance what is a person born to what does a person Mm. earn as they you know fight their way through the world so I'm really excited about it it's kind of I describe it as if 
Wong Kar Wai, the famous Hong Kong director, directed The Hunger Games, and you'd get Immortal Longings. That is the most captivating (laughs) sell for a book I think we've had in a long time. A long time. So when is that one coming out? July 25th. July 25th. Not not too long to wait then. I bet people are kind of clawing at, at the, your pre-order <laughs> buttons and things like that trying to get it. We we revealed the uh, UK cover yesterday and people were very excited, which made me very, very excited. Books like that, they're going to be unavailable in our library for like <laughs> a year. You know, it's going to be impossible to get hold of that's them. That's a high compliment. Yeah. As someone who was in those library queues yeah. for a long time for the popular books, that's a high compliment. Camping outside the library doors, like <laughs> reserving online, all of it. It'll be it'll be flying off the shelves. So I'm so excited for that. And then be you know, beyond the horizons of of this next sort of start of the next series, what are you thinking about? I'm sure you've probably got things churning in there, plans cooking up. So many plans cooking up. I think I want to, as mentioned before, I want to poke my foot into science fiction a mm-hmm. little as to what that entails or what it would be about. I don't know yet. Like I'm still very much kind of feeling around what I want to do next, but I think I'm going to be writing both young adult and adult for a very long time. Like, you know, even though I am very interested in what adult stories look like now mm-hmm. I still always want to be writing young adult because I think that's where I kind of had my start and it's where I it's the books that I needed as a teenager and I always want to be you know providing those types of stories so yeah, yeah I'm excited What a pleasure it was to speak to Chloe. I am always amazed and incredibly impressed by the authors that we speak to who write in this genre because it seems to take such a giant expanse of imagination to do it. That's so true. And is it, isn't it always brilliant to hear authors speaking about their own personal experiences with libraries? Okay, moving on to the second part of this episode now and time for an expert book recommendation from one of our library team members. Hi, Nikki. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Hattie. It's nice to be here. Yeah, now both Hattie and I have worked with you a lot in the past, so it's really good to be chatting with you again for this podcast. So for anyone listening, would you mind giving us a bit of a rundown about your role at Hampshire Libraries and what you like about it? I am the Events, Engagement and Information Manager for Hampshire Library Service. So the team that I work with basically manage all of the content that we share with the public. So that's our website, our social media content, posters in the libraries, the information you see on the RFID screen. We also do internal communications, so sending information out to our colleagues. And we work quite closely with other parts of Hampshire County Council to support our marketing and communications. What I love about my job is that in any given week, I'm working on probably about 15 different projects with people from all across the library service. I think I've met people from every single library we have in the county of the 40. I get to work with other parts of Hampshire County Council. So I've just finished a project with the records office, which was really exciting. And yeah, we get to support our our entire role really is to support what the library does for people. So that's obviously encouraging reading for pleasure, supporting literacy and providing a really trusted source of information as well as buildings that 
keep people warm and safe. Were you involved in the big project to refresh the look of the Hampshire Library's website? Yes. Yeah. So that's quite exciting. We've been working for quite a few months on that. And I suppose at the back, in the back of my mind is always how will customers use this information? What do they need to know? And hopefully, if you do have a chance to look at our new website, you'll find a really prominent link from the podcast on the homepage. We'll be trying out some different looks on the homepage over the coming months. So when we've got a big campaign like the Summer Reading Challenge, which supports children's literature, we'll have a bit of a homepage takeover for the Summer Reading Challenge. But do check out the new Kids Zone page because that's exciting as well. We've made some changes to the Kids Zone. It, it sounds like your role is a great kind of place to be because you know that everything that you do affects a customer. You know, someone coming into a library and looking at an RFID machine, it's got a connection to what you do and work that is produced by your team. So it must be very fulfilling to be working in those spaces and, and championing the brilliant things that libraries do. Yeah, definitely. I I think I always try and put myself in the shoes of a customer, be they a person of any age and at any point of interaction with the library service. Obviously, a lot of what we do nowadays from from my team side is digital, so the website and social media. But also, I always try and think about what what would a customer want to know, what what would make it easier for them to use the library. And it it is really exciting. I think it's something that people don't think about. You know, you think about the books, you think about the people you meet on a day to day basis, you think about the public computers, you probably don't always think about what goes on behind the scenes. But yeah, we're part of a sort of small but focused behind the scenes team that support the sort of day to day running of the library service. So moving on to our book recommendations, each of us have brought along a book to chat about today. So Nikki, would you be happy to kick us off by telling us a little bit about the book that you've chosen and why? So I have bought The Perfect Golden Circle by Benjamin Myers, which is published by Bloomsbury and it's recently just come out. So um, I borrowed it from the library as a hardback. This author has written a number of titles, but this is the first book by him that I've read. And the subtitle is The Strange Rites of an English Summer. It's set in somewhere in southern England in the summer of 1989. And in, in the summer of 1989, I was an art student studying in Salisbury. And to my mind, this book is definitely set in those kind of Wiltshire hills, those rolling golden fields you see. If anyone's travelled west on the A303, you've gone through those fields as you head towards Stonehenge. Benjamin Myers doesn't explicitly say, but I know there were quite a few crop circles in that area in the 80s and 90s. And the premise of the book is it's really about a friendship between two men who've both suffered a bit of trauma, who spend the summer making fantastic crop circles and they they basically said that the two characters are uh, one is a Falklands veteran called Calvert and one is a kind of uh, a bit more of a sort of someone who lives on the edge of society a bit more of a kind of affable chaotic rogue called Redbone Um, and together they just spend the summer making these I think it's about nine incredible crop circles I think one of the things I loved about it and one of the things I found really interesting is that events that were things that I have lived through and friends have witnessed and experienced have now become both history and folklore. And it's a little bit chilling when you realise that your life has become a part of historical fact, but it also took me back to a very happy time when I was very young, free, and there seemed to be a lot of possibility in the world. 
Uh, well, I, I really remember the phenomenon of crop circles in the 80s. I remember it really well. And I remember hearing that it was two hoaxers. And I, one of them I know came from Winchester, so certainly came from Hampshire, who were largely behind it. And so do you know whether this book has been inspired by those real life pranksters? There's definitely some real events that happened in the book. There was an an event called the Battle of the Beanfield, and I remember that happening. So it it wouldn't surprise me if the author hadn't taken inspiration from them. Now, whether he ever actually tracked them down and interviewed them, I don't know. He's quite cagey. He's written two very, very relatable but very real characters who literally you know, come off the page. And I was personally totally immersed in the story. But I suppose at the end of the day, we have to remember it is fiction, <laughs> even if it touches on fact. So one of the questions that I have hearing about this book, I, the crop circle phenomenon, not as familiar to me, it's a little bit before my time, but is there a mystery around why they're creating these circles? And does the book solve that mystery or answer it? Or is it just fact and laid out there? You are aware that these two two characters Calvert and Redbone are making the crop circles but what's really interesting is at the end of every so every chapter details another crop circle they've made over the summer and at the end of each chapter you have other comments that might be an article taken from the media I say article it might be an interview on on the radio so in a way it's really interesting so you've got the reality of the two characters who are the hoaxers and then you've got the way the media is following the story over the summer as the crop circles become increasingly elaborate and complicated so I think in a way he's probably taking he's probably poking fun at the media and how they can take a story and find everyone but the actual protagonist Am I right, though, that they're not just it's not just about them having a bit of fun. It's also about possibly uh, about them using this art to question the nature of society or draw attention to the beauty of the landscape. Is, Is there an element of that to it as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The way he writes about nature is beautiful. And there's definitely an element of that for the characters. And there's also early discussion around climate change, which I found really interesting because as anyone who's lived through the late 80s, early 90s will remember, like it, was, it wasn't really on the mainstream media in the way it is now. And it's really interesting to read about the kind of the conversations they have about the concept of climate change and how we have to be custodians of the landscape. So they're definitely in their crop circles. Their goal or their aim is to honour the landscape and to revere it they revere it and they want to encourage other people to revere it they've just chosen an unusual medium but in a way it they think of it as art so they very much think of what they're doing as designs become increasingly elaborate as a piece of art and the selection of the site is really important and it's really funny I actually found myself looking on the map to see is this is this a real is this a real place but the author's covered his tracks very well (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, Wiltshire, Stonehenge, like if that is the setting, then it's quite a poetic location. Yeah, definitely. But then why wouldn't you include that? It's a mystical landscape. But I think in a way, because the author has included the kind of the industry that builds up around the crop circles to actually tell us the locations might do the same thing. You know, when there's books that are treasure hunts, golden hair books, and people became obsessed with finding the treasure. So I think in a way, he's dropped lots of clues 
And if you searched hard enough on your feet, you could probably find some of the locations. Mm. I might do that next. I might do that this summer. You never know. <laughs> now, I know I'm not the first person to point this out, but some of the themes of the book have quite a lot in common with the much loved television show, The Detectorist, with uh, Mackenzie Crook and Toby Jones. The way it's focusing on two male characters' friendship and their interaction with the land and the nature that surrounds them. And of course, this really serious way they go about being really good at this thing they've chosen to do, despite difficulties that come up. And also another thing it really reminded me of thinking about the themes of it is the play Jerusalem by Jez Butterworth, which is one of my absolute favourite um, plays in the way it's really steeped in this ancient natural landscape of the English countryside. So did you think there were sort of similarities with these two other bits of culture or uh, and are there other books or films you thought that might cover the same sort of area? I don't know the play Jerusalem but I might have to look it up now you've mentioned it. I definitely think you, you've hit the nail on the head with the um, analogy with the detectorist and it's interesting because there are hardly any female characters in this book at all which is unusual. I wouldn't normally choose a book that didn't have any female characters in. But actually, I think that the author, who is also male, has done such a good job of explaining a particular kind of male friendship to us, which is quite, it's really interesting because they are literally only friends around the crop circles. The rest of the year, when they're not making them, they don't see each other. It's a really interesting insight into how a particular kind of male friendship can blossom and really work for those two people but maybe be something quite mystifying to people who are outside of it and don't understand you know what what pulls them together this isn't the kind of book that I would probably just go and find and read is this the kind of book that you would uh, you know what what attracted to you in the first place um I think I was attracted to it because it's got a beautiful cover it is a really beautiful the hardback edition is a beautiful book I think it's just because I I remember crop circles. I remember them being a big phenomenon where I was living at that time. And I was just curious to see what the book was about. Um, and I actually, I was wandering around a library and I saw it on a bookshelf, new books. And I thought, that looks really interesting. And I just picked it up and started reading it. And I guess that's the beauty of working in a library and belonging to a library. If I'd hated it, I could always have returned it. But luckily I loved it. So we've been talking about The Perfect Golden Circle by Benjamin Myers. Moving on to our second recommendation then, Kate, what have you chosen to share today? Well, I decided to talk about an old favourite of mine, which some people have compared with the book that we've just been talking about. So I've picked A Month in the Country by a J.L. Carr, which was first published back in 1980. And like The Perfect Golden Circle, it's set in the English countryside during a perfect summer. It's, it's also a book that's set in the past. The narrator is remembering a time 60 years before. And interestingly, like The Perfect Golden Circle, it also deals with ex-military trauma and the healing power of beauty in the landscape. And again, it's very much a man writing beautifully about the countryside, the English countryside and nature in general. And it, it's a short book, a novella really. And it's about a young man. He's uh, shell-shocked from the First World War he arrives in a remote Yorkshire village to spend the summer restoring a wall painting in the village church. And even though it's quite short and superficially it's got some simplicity to it, it really covers some incredibly complex ideas and it does beautifully capture the feeling of the English countryside in high summer. 
So I don't know, have I, is it a book that either of you have, have read? I've never read it, but you've made me want to read it now. <laughs> I'm searching the library catalogue as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good counterpart, I think, to uh, to The Perfect Golden Circle. It's definitely got some things in common with it. So, yeah, I'd be really interested if you do read it, uh, what you think. It was it was shortlisted for the booker when it came out. But yes, it is. It's quite, I guess, to me, still 1980 seems quite fresh. But uh, it's uh, it is 43 years ago now. That's quite mm. frightening. What um, made you pick that one up then, Kate? Um, I think because it is a bit of a classic. I think some people have studied it at school, for example. Mm. And so I I just kind of heard about it as a book. And I think uh, somebody was referring to it as a book that they'd love. And so uh, I thought I'd give it a go. And it does. Uh, I did really enjoy it. And because it's such a short book, I did a quick reread when I knew I'd be talking about it today. And I had forgotten how just how beautiful it is and how quirky it is as well. The author, he's, I think he's quite an interesting man. He set up Publishing House and somebody described it as he, he's written it in a way he's not trying to fit in with a genre. He's not trying to meet expectations of anyone else. He's just writing a very, very personal book for his own pleasure in some ways. So it's very of its own kind, the, the, how it's structured. It's, it's one that was stayed with me for a long time. It would be fascinating to find out if Benjamin Myers had read this, wouldn't it? Because there seems to be so many parallels between the two. Oh. But let's hope someone interviews him and finds out. That would I'd yeah. love to know now. We'll get him on the podcast. <laughs> I think you should definitely invite him on. Yeah. I just wanted to say, um, I think it's really interesting that I these books are lovely to read in the winter. Mm. Because certainly I really I read this book in January when it was still really, really cold. And I don't know if Kate found this, but on a grey or gloomy day, it's so nice to read about the summer and just to be transported and think it's only a few months away. We're going to be warm again soon. You know, we're going to feel the warmth of the sun on our skin. So it's so interesting to hear you both talk about the kind of theme of summer being such a core concept in the books that you've chosen, because my reading has kind of bypassed the the genre that you're speaking about I thought I'd go with a book that I was really reminded of while I was learning more about the perfect golden circle the summer being like this kind of additional element to the story that helps to I don't know raise tensions or or drive the plot forwards or or make it take you back in a very like nostalgic way so I've picked The Green Mile by Stephen King which is a bit of a classic but it's a really similar setting. It's obviously a much less idyllic, perfect summer. It's more kind of like cloying and yeah, really like muggy and horrible in that book, but it really drives it forward. And as I said, it's a bit of a classic. So probably a lot of our listeners would have would have heard of it, would have seen the film or would have read it. But for those who haven't, it's a, I think it's a novella as well. It's not very long. Set in 1930s America, It tells the story of a prison guard on death row and his encounter with a new inmate who's been convicted of a horrific crime. But this new inmate seems to have this kind of almost unnerving gentleness to him. And he's also got, you know, some supernatural (laughs) abilities that kind of come out in the story. And the story itself handles topics like racial inequality, the injustice of the prison system and capital punishment and things like that. 
with elements of magical realism thrown in there. And, and this is reflected quite well in the film as well. So if you've seen that, it, it's quite a true adaptation, I think. And I've read some Stephen King in the past, but I've never really connected with it as much as I did with this story. I think I read it about 10 years ago and it's just stayed in my memory ever since. I kind of come back to it as a reference all the time because it's it's got this really really like feeling of nostalgia for for a time far pre my existence or anything like that and I think it was probably even written before I was born as well but I just couldn't put it down I found it so compelling and I found this kind of the the fact that an entire story and a like plot arc takes place in a single summer seems to be so relevant and I think that's uh, the the structure of a year kind of comes into play as you're growing up you kind of have this like annual schedule of of the summer being the time when you're free and I think that's probably why it works so well as a complete timing for a for a single story like this and yeah I just I think it's great quick read for anyone who's interested in the topics I sort of mentioned anyone who wants a little like tug on their heartstrings it's a very moving moving story really yeah I don't know if either of you have read that I haven't read it. I've definitely seen the film. It's one of my partner's favourite films. It's interesting because I've, I've listened to Stephen King on Borrow Books. I've listened to some of his books on Borrow Books and I really enjoy listening to them as audiobook. And I don't know if it's because they often choose um, narrators with American accents, but I find them really compelling audiobooks. But I've never actually read a physical book by Stephen King. Maybe I need to try with this one. I love the idea of magical realism being part of this, which is something I had forgotten about the film. And again, that's something I really find quite interesting is in book. So I'm definitely going to borrow this, Hattie, and, and give it another go. I'm definitely going to read it, I think. I was t- talking to Hattie earlier on. I did this exercise once about trying to identify the common themes of books or films or plays that you like. And I realised that of many of my absolute top favourites have a kind of slightly ambiguous magical realism to them. And that always attracts me. So, so the uh, the perfect golden circle is definitely a book that I would be pulled to for just that reason, and the same reason with this as well. And in fact, I I have shied away from Stephen King because I would think, will I sleep afterwards? Uh, but the book I have read of his is on writing, which I think is one of the best sort of textbooks of of how to write fiction. Some really brilliant advice, uh, or not just fiction, really any kind of writing. Uh, and that I would highly recommend. But I'm interested to hear what you say about BorrowBox. And I've, as we've spoken, I've picked up my phone to see what I can find on BorrowBox to download. On writing is an excellent book. If anyone is interested in writing, I would I would definitely read that because it's just so. This idea of hot weather as being this narrative device is something that actually crops up in loads of books. I was reading an article about this the other day, and it. Um, they were talking about how it features in books like The Go-Between and Aisha Malik's recent book, This Green Pleasant Land. It was all about hot summer. And a big favourite of mine, Barbara Vine, in, often in her psychological crime novels, a hot a period of hot weather just kind of makes everything more, um, uh, everyone more on edge and uh, it heightens the tension. It, she uses it as a device like that all the time. Definitely. I was just thinking about Deborah Levy and Hot Milk and Swimming Home, two examples of books set in, um, again, on ho- in holiday locations, not, not in England, but definitely where the heat and the, the climate is a character. 
So I was just going to say, Nikki, before we go, are there any other books you'd like to give a special mention to? So I've moved on to reading um, Ghosted uh, by Jen Ashworth, which is a debut, I believe. It's kind of, um, it's pitched as a darkly comic love story. I don't really normally ever read romantic fiction and I don't normally read comic fiction. So it's been a bit of a departure for me, but it's been a really interesting book. So the character is one of those novels where the uh, protagonist, who's a woman, a young woman, is quite unlikable. Hmm. Uh, the premise of the book is that her husband disappears. And so basically, I'm only halfway through over the, the weeks because the book is set over so far about three months. We learn more and more and more about the protagonist and uh, why her husband might have disappeared and, and gradually uh, details of her past life and spool. But it's, it's an interesting, it's interesting to read a book where the protagonist is quite an unpleasant person. But actually, I am really enjoying it. Mm. Um, so that is by Jen Ashworth. And another book I've got out of the library that I haven't read yet, but I'm planning on reading next is Haggitude by Sharon Blackie. And this is it's a book that says for any woman over 50 who's ever asked, what now? What do I want to be? Comes a life changing new book showing you how to control your second half um, and what may be your most dynamic part of your life yet. Interestingly, as a service, we're releasing a collection of books about menopause. And it's quite an interesting topic at the moment. There's been an awful lot of dialogue about it, which I think is a very helpful thing. So a real mix. I've gone from male-led fiction, dark comedy love story, to now something quite serious. We'll see. We love a reading list with range. So we've been talking about The Perfect Circle by Benjamin Myers, A Month in the Country by J.L. Carr, and The Green Mile by Stephen King. Thank you so much for joining us, Nikki. It's been an absolute pleasure and we hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much, Hattie and Kate. I've really enjoyed being on the podcast. Like many of our guests, Nikki really does have such a passion for reading and she's always got some really great and varied recommendations. Yeah, I, I love speaking to our library teams and I feel like I say this every episode, but I really do, especially when they've got different perspectives on working within the library. You know, Nikki's not a library team assistant, for example, but she still has that real core passion for books and reading that I think everyone who works in the library service does because, you know... Why wouldn't you? <laughs> Definitely. And as we mentioned in our chat with Nikki, if you've paid a visit to the Hampshire Library's website recently, you might have noticed that it's got a bit of a new look. But if you haven't, we'll pop a link in the show notes so you can have a bit of a browse. There's a lot of good stuff on there. It certainly it looks really great. I really enjoyed having a browse around. Anyway, that's about all we got time for today. Thank you to Chloe, Nikki, and thank you too for listening. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac.